We're going to be learning the Hamedrish Vahamasa on Parshas Vayeshev. This Parsha actually has three drushas and then one halachic section. The first drusha is about the brother's jealousy of Yosef. So the Hamedrish Vahamasa raises some literary questions about the Torah's description of this jealousy. And then he refers to Hamedrish, which says, If Ruvain had known that the Torah would tell the story, of his half-hearted attempt to save Yosef's life, so he would have saved him much more fully. Instead of proposing that they throw Yosef into the pit, he would have taken Yosef on his shoulders and taken him back to Yaakov. And the Medrash continues that the same is true of Aaron. If he had known that the Torah would tell the story of his coming out to greet Moshe when Moshe returned to Egypt to save the Jews, so instead of coming out by himself modestly, he would have come out with a whole processional and a band and instruments to greet Moshe. And third, the Medrash says the same thing applies to Boaz. If he had known that the Tanakh would tell the story of him helping give food to Rus, he would have given her much better food and taken much better care of her. And the Medrash concludes with a lesson that applies for all of us, even those who are not going to be in the Tanakh. In the olden days, when a person did a mitzvah, the Navi would write it down in the Tanakh. But nowadays, when we're post the Tanakh, who writes it down? So the Medrash answers, Eliyahu Kosva Eliyahu writes down the mitzvahs that we do, and Hashem signs it. So the Hamedrash Vahamasa wants to understand what is the meaning of this Medrash, and is the point of doing a mitzvah because it gets publicized? It sounds like if the mitzvah is not going to be publicized in writing, then there's no point to doing the mitzvah, which is obviously not true. So he wants to understand what is the teaching of this medrash. So in order to do so, he explains the story of the brother's jealousy. And he says that jealousy is a terrible character trait. It causes all sorts of problems and people come to hate the person that they're jealous of. But he notices something unusual. People will often comfort themselves and they'll say, he just got lucky. So that makes them feel better about themselves. This person didn't earn their success. They just got lucky. Now, why should that make a difference? Says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, even if the person got lucky, so a person could still be jealous that this other person got lucky and they did not get lucky. So we see that what people are jealous of is not the other person's success, but it's because they attribute it to the other person's internal worthiness. They're jealous that the other person is internally a better person than they are, and they've achieved more. But if they feel like the other person is not actually a better person, they only got lucky, so that makes them feel better about the success that the other person is enjoying. So jealousy is not about what the other person got or is enjoying, it's about the fact that they earned it. Now, the proper way to channel jealousy is to elevate oneself, which is what Chazal call kinas sofrim. So instead of trying to tear down the other person, the person should 
should say, since this person has achieved something, I'm jealous of them and I'm going to work harder to elevate myself to their level. Now, the brothers of Yosef did not do that. They channeled their jealousy in the wrong way and they tried to take down Yosef. Now, they were jealous that Yaakov loved Yosef more than the rest of the brothers. So they obviously thought that this reflected some internal quality of Yosef because if it's that Yosef just got lucky, so as we said, they would not have been as jealous. So they must have thought that Yosef was in some way internally better than them. Now, there's two reasons, says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, why a parent might prefer one of their children over the others. It could just be a natural feeling that for whatever reason, the parent has a preference for this child over the other children, or it could be an intellectual decision that the parent feels that this child has more potential than the rest of the children. Now, the first way, if it's just a natural random preference, so that has nothing to do with the child himself. It's just that the parent, for whatever reason, prefers and loves this child better. But if it's an intellectual decision, so that's a reflection of the fact that this child is actually better than the rest of the children in some way. So that's what happened in the story of Yosef. The Torah says that in fact, Yaakov loved Yosef more, ki ben zikunim hulo, because he was born in Yaakov's old age. So it had nothing to do with Yosef. It was just a random preference that Yaakov had for Yosef. Basically, Yosef got lucky. He didn't earn his father's love over and above the rest of the brothers. He just got lucky because him being born when Yaakov was older had nothing to do with Yosef. It was just random luck. But the other brothers did not understand that. They thought that Yaakov loved Yosef because he perceived him to be a better son than the rest of them. And the reason for that is because as the Torah says, Yosef used to badmouth his brothers. He used to tell his father all the things that they were doing wrong. So the brothers thought that Yaakov prefers Yosef because he's hearing all these bad reports about the other brothers. So he thinks that Yosef is a better son. So it's a reflection of the fact that Yosef is internally a better brother. So that's why the brothers were terribly jealous of him. But in fact, had they known the truth that Yaakov just randomly preferred Yosef, it was not because of a reason. He didn't actually think that Yosef had earned it or was better than them. Then they would have attributed it to luck and not been as jealous. Now the story continues and the Medrash Vahamasa explains that very often when people are jealous of someone else, they can't admit to themselves that they're angry because of what this other person has or because of their success. So they don't let themselves feel the jealousy and they just can't stand this person. But they're not able to understand exactly why. All they know is that every time they see this person, the person annoys them and they get aggravated with this person. So that's what happened between the brothers and Yosef. The Torah says, Lo yochlu shalom, which according to the Amedrash Vamasa means that they couldn't stand when Yosef would say hi to them. So Yosef would be friendly to the rest of them and they just couldn't stand him because of this jealousy, but they weren't able to understand and admit to themselves why it was that they disliked Yosef so much. Now, Ruvain was the only one of the brothers who didn't get caught up in this. So when the rest of the brothers wanted to kill Yosef, Ruvain suggests that instead of killing him, they throw him in the pit. But the Gemara says that the pit had all sorts of dangerous snakes and scorpions in it. So anyways, Yosef was going to die in the pit. 
So what was the benefit of what Ruvain proposed over just killing him? So Damedrish Ramasa says either because at least that way the brothers don't kill him directly or because the snakes and the scorpions are controlled by Hashem as opposed to people who have free will. So at least this way, Yosef was thrown in the pit and Hashem could save him from the dangerous animals. But there's still a problem with what Ruvain did because the Gemara says that if someone threatens to go ruin someone else's property, we don't believe them because we assume that they're not going to do so. They're just making a threat, but they're going to change their mind instead of carrying it out. Now, there is a debate that the Ramah records what happens if the person makes the threat in public? Do we believe them then or not? But according to the Ramah, even in public, we assume that people are not going to carry out their threat to hurt other people's property. So the same should have been true in this case. Even though the brothers were talking amongst themselves, threatening to kill Yosef, Ruvain should not have believed them. So he should not have proposed throwing Yosef into a pit where Yosef would be in danger. Ruvain should have assumed that the brothers were not going to do anything in the end. So to explain this, the Hamedrash Vamasa says that this principle in Halacha, the Avid Inish de Gazim, that people threaten but they don't carry out, is the same concept as Ein Adam Mesimatsmo Russia. We don't believe someone to testify that they committed a sin because a person does not have believability to make themselves a Russia. So just as we don't believe someone to say that they sinned in the past, in the same way we don't believe someone to say that they're going to sin in the future, so that's why we don't believe their threat. Now, based on the fact that these are the same concept, says the Hamedrish Vahamas said, there is a view that if it seems likely that this person did in fact commit the sin, then we do believe them. So we only don't believe someone when there's no grounds to believe them. But if it seems very likely that they're telling the truth, like for example, if they say that they committed this sin on their deathbed, so they're probably telling the truth, then we do believe them. So based on that, says the Amedrish if someone threatens to do a sin and there's strong evidence to believe that they're going to do so, so then again, we would believe them. So there are three forms of evidence that would create strong grounds to believe the threat. The first is if the person really dislikes this person, it's their enemy. So then we know that this is not an empty threat because presumably they hate this person and do want to cause them harm. The second form is if the person thinks that they're doing the right thing. So they don't even realize that what they're doing is wrong. They convinced or fooled themselves into thinking that hurting this other person is a mitzvah. So once they believe that they're doing the right thing, they're not going to back off at the last moment. If they know what they're doing is wrong, so then they might rethink it when it comes to the moment of action. But if they convince themselves that what they're doing is right, so if anything, that's going to motivate them even more strongly to go ahead and hurt the other person. So then we would believe the threat. And the third factor is if they make the threat behind the back of the person. If they threaten the person to their face, so then we could say that they don't really intend to hurt them. They're just trying to scare them. So they threaten them, hoping that the threat itself would scare the person. But if they make the threat behind the person's back, so then it doesn't seem that they're trying to just scare the person. It seems like they're actually going to hurt them. Now, all three of 
of these factors apply in this story of the brothers and Yosef? Because the brothers make the threat behind Yosef's back before he shows up. So that shows that they're serious. They also thought that they were doing a mitzvah of dealing with someone who's speaking Lashon Hara about them. So they didn't even realize what they were doing was wrong. They thought it was the right thing to do. And the Torah says that they hated Yosef. So because they hated him, we can assume that this was not an empty threat. So that's why Reuven believed their threat to kill Yosef, and he decided to half-heartedly save Yosef by throwing him into the pit instead. Now, this still leaves the question, why didn't Reuven fully save Yosef? Why did he half-heartedly save him by throwing him into a dangerous pit and not just fully save him? Says Damedrish Vamasa, it seems that Reuven was unsure. He didn't know if Yosef Yosef was innocent because maybe the brothers are right that Yosef is speaking Lashon Hara and needs to be dealt with. On the other hand, he wasn't sure if the brothers are right, so that's why he half-heartedly saved Yosef because he wasn't really sure what to do. So that's why the Medrash compares Ruvain to Aaron because Aaron was in the same boat. He also did not know what's the best way to greet Moshe when he was returning to Egypt. Says the Medrash Vamasa, there are two reasons why some Someone goes out to greet a guest, either because they're actually happy that the guest is here, so they want to show their internal joy, so they go out to greet the guest, or the other option is the opposite, that the host is unhappy that the guest is here, and in order to compensate and show as if they're happy, because they're really not, so they go out to greet the guest to make it appear as if they're happy to see the person. Now, the difference between these two forms of greeting a guest is whether you would have a public display of happiness that the guest has arrived. If the host is actually happy that the guest is here, then they can just go out by themselves modestly. They don't need instruments. They don't need a public display of happiness. But if the host is actually unhappy that the guest is here, so then they need to compensate by having a full public display of happiness with a whole processional and instruments. So that explains Aaron's decision. Moshe, who was such a humble man, when Hashem offered him to be the leader of the Jewish people, So Moshe was concerned that his older brother Aaron would be upset that Moshe was chosen instead of him. So that was Moshe's concern. And Hashem tells him, don't worry, Aaron is happy for you and he's coming out to greet you. Now, if Aaron was really upset that Moshe was the leader, so then he would have had to compensate by bringing a whole big processional and celebrating Moshe's arrival. But in fact, Aaron was not upset at all. He didn't care that Moshe had been chosen. He was happy that Moshe was chosen. So he was inherently happy that Moshe was returning as the leader of the Jewish people. So that's why he came out with a very modest processional without a whole public show and instruments because he didn't feel a need to create false happiness. He was internally incredibly happy to see Moshe. So that's why he came out just modestly by himself. So that's what Hashem is telling Moshe that you see that Aaron is actually happy because he doesn't feel a need to bring all sorts of instruments and have a public display of happiness because he himself is very happy. But that's what the Medrash says, that Aaron didn't even realize that Moshe was concerned that he would
would be upset. Had Aaron realized that there was a problem, that there was a concern, so then he would have brought instruments with him in order to greet Moshe. Now, says the Amedrash Vamasa, even if Aaron didn't feel a need to have instruments, but why not just bring instruments and make a nice processional to greet Moshe, even if it wasn't needed, but at least it doesn't hurt. Says the Hamedrash Vamaseh, Aaron had a different concern, which is very often when people become leaders in the community, even though initially their intentions were for the right reasons, but once they get some power, so it becomes about themselves and their ego. He has a cute line. The Gemara says that mitoch shalolishma balishma. If people do a mitzvah for the wrong reasons, eventually their motivations will become more pure lishma. Says the Hamedrash Vamaseh, that sometimes the opposite happens. Mitoch lishma ba lishma. People begin lishma, they intend to do it for the proper reasons, but eventually the power and the ego goes to their head and it becomes for the wrong reasons, shalolishma. So Aaron was concerned that even though Moshe is tremendously humble, he's the most humble man who ever lived, but now that he became powerful, maybe it's going to go to his head and he's going to start being arrogant. So that's why Aaron decided because of his own concerns, let's just keep the processional modest and not create a problem of Moshe perhaps becoming arrogant. So there were all these concerns going on in the story, and that's why Aaron decided to just have a modest processional. But had he been able to read the story in the Torah and get a clear perspective, so then he would have done a much happier, larger public processional to go greet Moshe. And the same concern also applied to Boaz, because Rus was a convert. Now, the Gemara says that in the days of David and Shlomo, they did not accept converts because the Jews were so wealthy and powerful at that time that they were concerned that people wanted to convert more for the physical wealth and power, more than being spiritually part of the Jewish people. So a convert has to do so for the right intentions. Now, Rus became the matriarch of the David dynasty. Her children are the dynasty of the kings. So perhaps Rus converted for such a high status in the Jewish people. How do we know that Rus's intentions in conversion were for the proper spiritual reasons? So the answer is because when Rus converted, she and her mother-in-law were destitute. They had nothing. So of course Rus was not converting for wealth or power because she chose to join the Jewish people when she had nothing. So this is an important aspect of Rus's conversion and Boaz was worried that if he would give Rus all sorts of wealth and goodies and comfort, so then perhaps it would look like her conversion was for the wrong reasons. It was for physical wealth. So that's why Boaz gave her very little, just the bare minimum to live so that it would be clear that her conversion was for the proper spiritual reasons and not for wealth. But had Boaz been able to read the story of Rus and seen how pure Rus's intentions were, so then he would have realized that there was no concern and he could have given her the best foods ever and still it would be clear that her conversion was for spiritual reasons. So that's what the Medrash is trying to say in all three of these cases, that the people involved, Ruvain, Aaron, and Boaz, had a concern about how their actions would play out. But it's because they didn't have the full story. They only saw their small part of the story, so that's why they were racked with doubt. But had they been able to see the full perspective, the way that
the Tanakh records it, so then they would have been able to act with clarity and do much more than they did. So says the HaMedrash Vahamasa, that's the lesson the Medrash is taking out of these stories because we all confront so many situations in our own lives when there's all sorts of cases of doubt. We're not sure whether we're doing the right thing. Sometimes it seems like it's right, but it could be wrong. Sometimes it seems like it's wrong, but it could be right. We have all these situations of doubt where we're unable to tell the broader perspective of what's going on. So in the olden days, says the Medrash, one could go to a Navi, and even though a Navi would never change a mitzvah of the Torah, but they could at least provide clarity on the broader situation. So the Navi could say to someone, this is the right thing to do, or this is the wrong thing to do, and then the person would have clarity beyond what they themselves were able to see. But now, says the Medrash, we don't have a Navi. So what are we supposed to do in the post-Nivuah period when we have all this confusion and we're unsure what we're supposed to be doing? We want to do the right thing, but we just can't tell what's the right thing in this situation. Says the HaMedrash Vahamasa, the only solution that we have is to see how our actions play out. We have to go ahead and do something and then see how it plays out in the world, how it plays out historically, and and then we'll be able to tell whether or not that was the right thing to do. So there is really no way to tell in these confusing situations what's right in the moment. We have to take a risk and then see eventually what works. And that way we'll be able to tell what was the right thing to do. And that's the answer of the Medrash. Who writes down what we're doing nowadays, meaning who provides clarity nowadays, Eliyahu and Mashiach, the future, meaning depending on what happens in the world and Hashem signs on it, meaning Hashem runs the world and the way the direction the world goes in provides some answer to the confusion of our times. So that is his first drasha, some insightful commentary on the story of Yosef and his brothers with a nice contemporary message for our times. The second drasha has to do with Hanukkah. The Gemara in Shabbos says two things right next to each other. The first is that the Hanukkah candles cannot be higher than 20 amas because nobody can see that high. And the second is that the pit Yosef was thrown into, so the Torah says it was empty, there was no water. Says the Gemara, there was no water, but there were snakes and scorpions. So the question is, why are these two statements next to each other? On a simple level, it's because both of them were said by the same person, Rav Kahana, in the name of Rav Nassan Barmin Yume. But obviously, there's a deeper reason why the Gemara connects these two statements to each other. It connects the pit of Yosef with the Hanukkah. Now, second, the Torah records that Yehuda protested to his brothers, Ma Betza, what's the point of killing Yosef? So the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Vavam Bez, says a few unusual things about this Pasuk. It quotes Rabbi Yosei that when two litigants come to court, the judges should not do a pshara, make a deal between them. They have to judge the case. And he compares this to the Pasuk of Botseya Beirach, that Botseya means to make a deal and one should not do that. Now, Rabbi Meir says that this is talking about Yehuda. One should not praise Yehuda because he used the word betza and the Pasuk is saying that betza is bad. So the question is, why is Yehuda worse than Ruvain who also half-heartedly saved Yosef? Now, in the Haftorah of the Parsha, it says that Yoshua the Kohen Gadol saw a vision and there was an angel of Hashem and the Satan standing there and he says that Hashem is going to 
deal with the Satan and come back to Yerushalayim. And Yehoshua was wearing dirty clothing. So Hashem said, remove the dirty clothing. And he gave him nice clothing. And he said, if you follow the ways of the Torah, so then you'll be able to stand amongst these. So obviously this is a strange prophecy. And Rabbi Chesko Lipschitz is going to explain the purpose of the prophecy in the Haftorah. So he begins with the Gemara that says that when the Jews were at Har Sinai, Hashem held the mountain on top of them. And he said, if you accept the Torah, then good. If not, I'm going to bury to kill all of you here. So the Gemara says, based on that, the Jews do not actually need to follow the Torah because they didn't accept it freely. They were forced to accept it. But Rava says that the Jews accepted the Torah again freely in the times of Purim. So that's why they're obligated to follow the Torah because then it was freely chosen. It was not coerced. So the obvious question is, what about all the generations from the giving of the Torah until the time of Purim, there's like a thousand years there, did all those people actually not need to follow the rules of the Torah? And if so, how did they give the death penalty to people that violated Shabbos? We have a story like that in the Torah or someone that cursed Hashem if those people were not actually obligated to follow the Torah. Also, why did the Jews wait until the miracle of Purim to accept the Torah? There were earlier miracles in Jewish history. Why didn't they accept the Torah then? So the Hamedrash Vamasa explains that the Torah is not only the spiritual strength of the Jewish people, but it's also the source of our physical strength. Because an army does not fight if there's no reason, there's no cause that they're fighting for. We see this unfortunately nowadays, the IDF soldiers go to war and they fight and they give their whole heart for the fight because they're defending their families and Judaism and the state of Israel. But if they were fighting for nothing, there was no point to the war, they didn't care, so then they would fight with a lot less energy. So Jews throughout all the ages fought physically and they fought heroically to protect their way of life and the values of the Torah. So the Torah is not only our spiritual strength, but it's also what gives us the physical strength to stand up and protect ourselves. Without the Torah, we would have no cause that we're fighting for, so then we would give up physically as well. Now, when we say that someone is coerced to do something, it means that they were in a state of danger, and in order to get out of it, they needed to do something. But let's say there was danger towards someone else and then another person came to save that person in danger. So we wouldn't say that that person was coerced. They made a choice to enter a dangerous situation in order to help someone else. So the same is true of the Torah. It wasn't actually coerced on the Jewish people because even though when they were standing under the mountain, they were in danger. So at that moment, it was coerced. But the Jews chose many times throughout history to put themselves in danger in order to stand up and defend the values of the Torah. So that was not coerced. That was the Jews choosing to defend the values of the Torah. And this dynamic became clear in the story of Purim. Because says the Amedrash Ramasa, there's a huge question on the story of Purim. At the end of the whole miracle, the king sends a document that the Jews are able to defend themselves. And the Jews do so. They fight heroically and they defeat their enemies. But nothing actually changes. 
changed. What's the difference before that document and after? The Jews could have always fought. When the king originally sent out the document that the enemies of the Jews are allowed to destroy them, the Jews could have chosen to fight back heroically and defend themselves. And even after the king sent the second document that the Jews can defend themselves, nobody else helped the Jews. They on their own were able to defeat their enemies. So what changed between the first part of the story and the second part of the story? If the Jews had the physical strength to defend themselves, then why didn't they do so originally? Says Damedrish Vamasa, the explanation is because the real problem in the story was not that the king said that the enemies of the Jews could attack them. It's that the Jews had lost a certain spiritual energy. They were no longer motivated by the values of the Torah. They were enjoying their lives in Persia. They were eating at the king's feast. They were having a good time. They were not connected to the Torah. So even though they had a large Jewish community and they had a lot of physical strength and they could have fought back, but they didn't have the motivation, the spiritual energy that would motivate them to do so. So that's why at the beginning of the story, they were in trouble. Once the miracle happened, that reawakened the spiritual energy of the Jews. They now understood their commitment to the Torah and that they're not just fighting a physical battle to defend themselves, but they're standing up for the values of the Torah. And that gave them the impetus, the drive to gather together and to fight back heroically and to defeat their enemies. So that's what shifted in the story of Purim. So that's what the Gemara is saying, that now the Jews understood that in fact they accepted the Torah not because they were forced to, but because they wanted to. Now they saw that they're willing to stand up and fight for the values of the Torah. And that's the language of the Gemara. It says that Hashem threatened them, if you don't accept the Torah, Sham there you will be buried. It doesn't say here you will be buried under the mountain. It says there in exile, wherever you find yourself spread throughout the world, there you'll be buried because you won't stand up and fight for the values of the Torah. But in the times of Purim, the Jews finally understood that originally they accepted the Torah not under duress, not because the mountain was being held over them, but because they actually wanted to stand up and spread the values of the Torah to the rest of the world. And they were willing to fight to do so. So that's why the miracle of Purim was different than earlier miracles. And also it's not that before then the Jews had not accepted the Torah. It's that at Purim, the Jews realized that all along they had accepted the Torah. Once they realized that it wasn't that they were forced to avoid danger to accept the Torah, but it was really the other way. The Torah was what was giving them the energy and the drive to protect themselves. So they realized that all along they had been connected with the Torah, even the earlier generations. So that was all the miracle of Purim. But the miracle of Hanukkah was a different type of miracle. In the story of Purim, Haman was threatening the physical lives of the Jewish people. He wanted to kill all the Jews. As opposed to in the times of Hanukkah, Antiochus was threatening the spiritual survival of the Jews, their souls, their commitment to Judaism, but he was not not threatening them physically.
So when the Jews fought back at the times of Hanukkah, it was to protect their spiritual souls, their commitment to Torah and mitzvot, a life of Judaism. But they were not fighting just to protect their lives. So that's why, says the Amedrash the Gemara is so strict about the rules of Hanukkah and spreading the nes, Pirsume Nisa, by lighting the menorah all over the place to show that this is a symbol of the holiness and the purity of the Jewish people and that we are willing to protect and defend our spiritual lives with whatever means necessary. So that's exactly why the halacha is that the candles cannot be more than 20 amas high because nobody can see that high. So if people can't see it, it's not accomplishing its goal of reinforcing that we are going to do anything to promote and protect our spiritual lives. So that's why the story of Hanukkah is connected to the story of Yosef. Because originally the brothers were going to kill Yosef. Then they decided to throw him into the pit where there were dangerous animals. So all of that was a physical threat to Yosef's life. But then Yosef confronted an additional threat. When he was sold as a slave to Egypt, which was a very low culture, so that was a threat to Yosef's spiritual life. The question was, would he assimilate into this low, depraved culture? So that was the choice confronting Yosef, to have a physical threat or a spiritual threat of going down to Egypt. So when Yehuda said to the brothers, let's not kill Yosef, let's sell him as a slave instead, Yehuda was saying, let's at least save his physical life, but we'll put him in spiritual danger. So Yehuda realized that the brothers hated Yosef and he couldn't save him. So Yehuda said, let's make a deal. On the one hand, we won't kill him. Him physically, but we will kill him spiritually by sending him down to Egypt. So Yehuda did two things wrong. First of all, he should not have made a deal with people who were doing something wrong. Yehuda should have stood up for what was right, and he should have said to the brothers, we're not going to harm Yosef at all. And second, he shouldn't have given priority to Yosef's physical salvation over his spiritual salvation. Yehuda was saying that at least we won't kill Yosef physically, but I'll allow you to kill him spiritually as if physical life is more important than spiritual life, and that is not correct. And says the Amedrash Vamasa that so many people make this error, and especially parents when they're confronted with taking care of their children physically or spiritually, so they choose the physical path and they send them to all sorts of places which cause them to assimilate and not have a spiritual life, but the parents are happy so long as the children are successful physically. And that is not correct. They should be concerned both physically and spiritually for the success of their children. So that was the mistake that Yehuda made. And that's why the Gemara says that making a deal is wrong because making a deal and splitting the pot with people who are doing the wrong thing is the wrong approach. A person should stand up for what's right. And that's also why the Gemara says that anyone who praises Yehuda, meaning they follow in his path and they try to provide for their children physically but not spiritually, so that's the wrong thing thing to do, and that person should be criticized. Whereas Ruvain, even though he also half-heartedly saved Yosef, but at least he did not prioritize Yosef's physical life over his spiritual life. His plan
plan was to throw Yosef into the pit and then allow Hashem to deal with the rest of it. So even though that was far from a perfect solution, but at least Ruvain was not saying, let's provide for Yosef physically and kill him spiritually. So he didn't make the same mistake as Yehuda in that regard. So that's why the Gemara doesn't criticize him in that regard. And this also explains why the two statements are next to each other in the Gemara. First, the Gemara says that the Hanukkah candles can't be so high that people can't see them. And the point of that is that we are celebrating Hanukkah to show our commitment to our spiritual lives, that we're willing to fight and endanger ourselves in order to protect Judaism. So on that, the Gemara says that Ruvain also understood that. That's why he didn't propose selling Yosef as a slave to Egypt the way Yehuda did, because he knew that that would only save Yosef physically, but it would hurt him spiritually. So that's why Ruvain said, let's throw him into the pit, even though he would be in danger in the pit as well, because there were dangerous animals there. But says Ruvain, at least he won't be in spiritual danger if he's sold as a slave to Egypt. So Ruvain understood that the physical life does not come before the spiritual life. Now, there is a concern with all this talk that one might think that Judaism is a spiritual religion. It has nothing to do with the physical world. So to counter that notion of Hanukkah, that's why we read the Haftorah of Zechariah, which stresses that Judaism is a religion that also applies in the real world. The Haftorah is talking about the Kohen Gadol. Now, the role of the Kohen Gadol begins in a spiritual way. His purpose is to oversee the service in the Beis HaMikdash, which is totally spiritual. It's between people and Hashem. So the Kohen Gadol lives in a rarefied world of spiritual perfection, and that's where he devotes his energy to. Now, if the Kohen Gadol would keep himself only in that arena, he would just stay in the Beis HaMikdash and do his service, so nobody would have any problems with the Kohen Gadol. Everybody would be happy with what he's doing, and everybody would leave him alone the same way he leaves them alone. But if the Kohen Gadol becomes a real leader of the Jewish people, and he gets involved in the community, so then, of course, he's going to step on some people's toes, he's going to bother some people. People, and they're going to be upset with him. So a Kohen Gadol who stays only in the Beis HaMikdash will have no enemies. But a Kohen Gadol who gets involved and tries to make a real difference in the world is going to have political enemies. And says Rabbi Cheskel Lipschitz that a lot of spiritual leaders of the Jewish people decide we don't need the kinds of problems that come from getting all involved in the politics of the real world. We'll just stay in our own little small corner and do our thing, and we don't need to get into fights with other people. But that's not the right thing to do. That's a reflection of laziness. And says the Amedrash Ramasa, very often the spiritual leader can convince himself that he's doing the right thing. He's so holy, he's just spending all his time studying Torah and doing mitzvahs, he's doing the right thing, and he doesn't even realize that he's doing the wrong thing, because he's not spreading the Torah, he's not getting involved in the way that he should be, and help 
helping others. He's just sticking to himself because he's lazy and he's scared of going out there and getting into political fights with other people. So this is a reflection of the confusion that sometimes comes, as was mentioned in the previous drusha, when people can fool themselves into thinking they're doing the right thing when in fact it's the wrong thing. So that's the story with Yoshua Kohen Gadol in the Haftorah. The Satan is trying to convince him, why are you getting involved with the rest of society? Just spend your time focused on the Beis Hamikdash, on holiness. Don't get involved with anybody else. So that's what Hashem responds to the Satan. You are trying to pretend like Yoshua Kohen Gadol being isolated in the Beis Hamikdash is the best thing, but in fact, his purpose is to go out in the world and spread the Torah and get involved in the real world. That's the real job of spiritual leaders to make a difference in the world. But now that's the symbolism of the dirty clothes that Yoshua Kohen Gadol had because getting involved in the world is dirty and a person does lose some of their spiritual standing and people are upset at them and it gets muddy and it gets dirty and Yoshua Kohen Gadol is now not a pure spiritual leader but he has these dirty clothes on him which it looks like he's involved in all sorts of things that he shouldn't be. So that's what the Navi says, remove those dirty clothes take them off of Yehoshua, there has to be a balance. He can't be so involved in the politics of the community that he loses his spiritual standing and his spiritual focus. On the other hand, he can't be so isolated in the Beis Hamikdash that he's not involved with the community. There has to be a balance between being involved and not getting so muddy and dirtied by the politics. So that's the lesson of the Haftorah, that even though Hanukkah is a holiday that's focused on the spirituality, we celebrate the spiritual over the physical, but it's not to the exclusion of the physical and involvement in the real world. There has to be a balance. The third drasha is very short. It focuses on the Haftorah from Amos. The Navi says that the children are becoming Nevi'im and Nizirim, so they're holy, but the people are trying to corrupt them by giving them wine and making them less holy. So then he says that they're going to be crushed like a wax wagon filled with grain. So it's unclear what the point of this is. So Damerish Ramasa explains that the point of the Nevi'im was to rebuke the Jews when they were not following the rules of the Torah. So the Nevi'im are only needed when the Jews are not doing the right thing. But if all the Jews would be tzaddikim and everyone would be doing the right thing and following the Torah, then there's no need for a Navi. So the whole purpose of a Navi only comes about when there's a problem that the Jews are not following the Torah. Now, the issue is that at all times, the Jews did not appreciate the Nevi'im. When they were doing the right thing, so they didn't need Nevi'im, and it would have been annoying to have someone rebuking them when that person was not needed. But even when the Jews started sinning, so now they were doing the wrong thing, they were still annoyed to be getting rebuked by the Nevi'im. So they still did not want the help that was being offered them. Instead, they wanted to continue sinning and not get told off by the Navi. And the same is true in our days that when people are doing the wrong thing and someone 
shows up to rebuke them and to tell them that they're doing something wrong. So they resent that person and they come up with all sorts of excuses about why that person shouldn't be allowed to speak and they're not interested in hearing their message. And they come up with all sorts of reasons to avoid hearing the rebuke that they need. So the same happens to Amos. He gets told in chapter seven to leave because he's not needed, basically because the person does not want to hear his rebuke, which was obviously needed. So this is one of the themes that Amos has, that people who are sinning don't want to hear the Navi's rebuke, and Amos is responding to them. So that's what he's trying to say in these psukim, because the Jews could complain, why do they have Nevi'im rebuking them when the non-Jews get to do the same sins and nobody rebukes them? So Amos says it's because you have a larger load, you've been given better blessings, so you have more responsibility. It's like someone who's very wealthy has more responsibility, but nobody would complain and say, well, I wish I wasn't so wealthy, so I had less responsibility. People enjoy being wealthy, even though it comes with responsibility. So that's what Amos is telling the Jews, that if you're going to complain to me about having Nevi'im and Nezirim, people who are holy, who give you rebuke for the things that you're doing wrong, and you say, why can't we be like the non-Jews who don't get rebuked for their sins? So the answer is, I'm going to crush you like a wagon being crushed by grain, meaning you have so much wealth and so much blessing and so much potential like this wealthy person whose wagon is being crushed by grain, but nobody would complain about that because they'd rather the wealth even if it makes it harder to move the wagon. So too, the Jews should prefer being the chosen people even though it comes with more responsibility. So that's the third short drasha. Now, the halacha section focuses on the laws of Hanukkah. There is a debate between Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel as to how to light the Hanukkah candles. According to Beis Shammai, you start with eight the first night and then take one away each night. And according to Beis Hillel, you start with one and then add another candle each night. Now, there's a debate in the Gemara how to explain the debate between Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel. One says that Beis Shammai holds we light candles based on how many days are left to the holiday, whereas according to Beis Hillel, we light candles based on how many days have passed. And the second way to explain the debate is Beis Shammai compares the Hanukkah candles to the sacrifices of Sukkis, which went down each day. And Beis Hillel holds Malin Bakodesh, we go up in sanctity and not down. So Damerish Ramas is going to explain this debate. Now there is another debate. The Gemara raises the issue of whether the candles have to burn for a specific amount of time, or do they only need to be lit within a certain window, but there's no minimum measurement of how much they need to burn. And this is a debate in the post-skim, how we rule. The Shulchan Arach in Tafresh Ayin Bey's Sif Bey's rules that the candles need to burn for a minimum amount of time. It's generally considered to be about half hour. But the Bach there quotes that Rabbeinu Tam and the Rav Yoh and the Ri, they rule like the other explanation of the Gemara, that there is no minimum measurement that the candles need to burn. They only need to be lit within a certain window, but there is no minimum measurement of time they need to burn. So again, the Hamedr Shamas is going to explain this debate. So he quotes the famous question of the Beis Yosef, that since they had enough oil for one night, why is Hanukkah eight nights long? It burned for eight nights, but the miracle was only seven nights. The first night was not a miracle that it burned. So there's many answers to this question. The Beis Yosef himself 
himself answers that they took the one jar of oil and divided it into eight sections. So they were going to burn one eighth each night. So it turns out that each night there was a miracle. Now the Taz gives a different answer. He says that they burned the one jar of oil that first night, but the whole thing didn't burn. There was a little bit left over in order to have a miracle and continue burning for the rest of the seven days. So according to the Taz, the miracle the first night was that the whole jar didn't burn. There was a little drop left to continue burning the rest of the seven days. Says the Hamedrash Vamasa, there is a big difference between the Beis Yosef's approach and the Taz. Because he says that the main part of a miracle is when it first starts being a miracle. Once the miracle's in the midst of going on, it's less of a big deal. The big deal is the moment that the miracle starts. Now, according to the Beis Yosef, the real miracle was the first night when they burned an eighth of the oil and it still burned all night. So that was a very significant miracle. But the rest of the seven days, the same miracle kept happening. So those last seven days were less of a miracle than the first night, which was when the real first miracle began. As opposed to the Taz, who says that each night there was a new element to the miracle. So the first night, there was a little bit left over. The whole jar didn't burn. That was a miracle. Then they burned that little bit the second night. And again, there was a little bit left over. And then they burned that even smaller little drop. And it burned the whole third night. So each night, there was a new element to the miracle. So each of the nights was equivalent in terms of how great the miracle was. Says the Amedrash said that's the debate between Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel. Beis Shammai agrees with the Beis Yosef, therefore they hold that the first night was the real miracle, so that's why we should light eight candles that night. But then the rest of the nights were not as significant as the first night, so that's why we go down in number. As opposed to Beis Hillel agrees with the Taz that each night the miracle continued to grow, the miracle was getting greater and greater as the nights progressed. So that's why we go up in the number of candles that we're lighting. And this could also explain the debate whether the candles need to burn for a minimum amount of time. According to the Beis Yosef, the miracle was that the candles burned all night, even though they only had an eighth. So the miracle was not that they initially started to burn. It was how long they burned for. So that's why the Beis Yosef, the Shulchan Aruch, holds that the candles need to burn for a minimum amount of time in order to commemorate the miracle that they burned all all night in the times of Hanukkah, even though they only burned an eighth of the oil. As opposed to the Taz, who holds that the miracle was in the fact that it lit at all, because there shouldn't have been any oil left at all. So the fact that the candles got lit at all was a miracle. So that's why according to the Taz and that view, you don't need to light the Hanukkah candles for a minimum amount of time. Even just lighting them is itself a way of recognizing the miracle.